Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 20, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Today we start with the oceans, southern oceans and all the oceans, then head for the Laguna Greenbelt. First, UCI climate scientist Keith Moore will speak about what trends in phytoplankton, the menu supporting fish populations, are telling us about the ocean's health. Not looking all that good, folks. In the second segment, Elizabeth Brown, president of the Laguna Greenbelt, will oversee the wildlife corridor as we honor the 50th anniversary of the Laguna Canyon Conservation. Didn't happen on its own. A lot of locals worked tirelessly to keep that project alive. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Keith Moore, UCI oceanographer extraordinaire, who, along with his research team, has recently published uh, in Science and Magazine and elsewhere some dire findings about the productivity of our oceans. His interests include the role of marine biota in global biochemical cycles and Earth's climate system. He focuses on understanding how marine phytoplankton and other ocean biota influence the cycling of key elements. It's carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, silicon, iron in the oceans and on biogeochemical links between the ocean, atmosphere, and land. Talk about multitasking through atmospheric transport and riverine runoff. These topics are approached through computer modeling of marine ecosystem dynamics and biogeochemical cycles and by analysis of satellite remote sensing data of ocean physical and biological properties. He completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Computer Science from University of Texas at Austin, his Master's of Science in Environmental, Coastal, and Ocean Sciences from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, his Ph.D. in Oceanography from Oregon State University, and was a postdoctoral fellow at the Advanced Studies Program at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. He joined UCI in 2002. He's here today to talk about his groundbreaking, or We'll call it state-of-the-art Earth system model findings about phytoplankton. This should concern us all. Watching Keith commute to and fro his lab, casually tuning into something on his smartphone, one has no idea of the doom his research reveals. Right now, he joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Keith Moore. Uh, Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So... Let's start. It's a phytoplankton, the menu of champions, buffet of legions, is on the wane. Let's start with the general scope and then break it down into the lurid details a little bit later. Your groundbreaking study is important as it extends the climate simulations beyond the existing simulations projected to 2100 all the way to 2300. Why this 200-year-later projection, and we'll ask some more about that. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in part, we wanted to go farther into the future just to, to see what happens with um, continued global warming over multi-century timescales, because you can have uh, different processes can kick in on those longer timescales that can affect the trajectory of how warm the climate will be in the future, and also can have big impacts on uh, both marine and terrestrial ecosystems. And so it's true that, you know, probably 99% of the climate simulations that have been done have only gone out to the year 2100. And I think, you know, in the past it was appropriate to focus maybe on those shorter lifetimes. But now I think, and and this study really argues that we need to be looking much farther into the future. Okay. And so how far have you gone back to begin measuring these trends? Well, so these trends start recently, you know, with the um, Industrial Revolution in the 1850s, when we first started building factories with smokestacks and burning fossil fuels. 
And, um, you know, we start our climate simulation back hundreds to maybe a thousand years before that. But in the time before that, climate was relatively stable. And it's not till humans start emitting the greenhouse gases to the atmosphere that the planet starts to warm up. Okay. All right. So let's have you talk about the differences between the global climate and the ocean trends, along with your assumptions about greenhouse gas emissions continuing over the century. So we can't base... I mean, it's an entirely different dynamic going on below the ocean surface from what's going on in uh, in the air and on land. So, you're tell us. A, I mean, it's like a whole system there that you're you're plotting here, in uh, in the ocean. Mm-hmm. One of the key things here is that the oceans respond to climate change much more slowly than the atmosphere or the terrestrial, the land ecosystems that feel the changes in air temperature right away. In the oceans, you know, as the atmosphere starts to heat up, most of that heat is ending up in the oceans over time. But but the heat is only entering right at the surface of the ocean. And then it takes decades or centuries for the circulation to bring that heat down into the ocean interior. But as you're doing that, you're also changing ocean circulation and the patterns of, of plankton growth and productivity in the oceans. So the the circulation of oceanic waters is a... A much is could you say it's more complicated than it is up in there? It's uh, to, to I wouldn't say it's more complicated. It's just a, a slower process because the, the ocean waters, you know, a lot of the dynamics are the same in the ocean and the atmosphere. Just okay. everything happens much more quicker in the atmosphere okay. because the air is moving much more quicker. In the oceans, you know, there's a lot of inertia built in. It takes a long time to warm up the oceans. And the oceans are doing us a great favor at the moment in that they are absorbing a lot of the heat that the greenhouse gases are adding to the system. It's actually more than 90% of the heat that's been added is now in the oceans. And only a small fraction has remained in the atmosphere and caused a lot of these crazy trends in the weather we've been seeing and this one degree of climate warming in the atmosphere that we've seen so far. So... The warming, though, it's only, as you point out in your your research, and I really, forgive me for being, I can nev- I'll never go as deep as I want. It's only, though, in the very upper sort of tier of the, the, the water column that this absorption is taking place so far. Right. And then the circulation has to then move that heat deeper down slowly over time as the water circulates down. And so... When you go out 300 years to 2300, at that point, the atmosphere and the ocean have warmed up uh, tremendously. It's almost, it's almost like a different planet. I was really surprised when I looked at the results of this simulation. So, you know, right now, as you may be aware, we're seeing less and less sea ice in the Arctic Ocean during the summer months. Yeah. And that's a worrying trend. But by, you know, a couple of hundred years in the future... There's no sea ice during the summer or the winter. 99% of the sea ice is gone from the planet. The oceans and the atmosphere have just gotten too warm for the oceans to freeze over. Even at the North Pole in the middle of winter, where you have no sunlight for months at a time, (laughs) the oceans are not going to be freezing. And that has a big impact, and it it really um, changes the the plankton dynamics around Antarctica, and that's what ultimately drives this global-scale decreases in marine productivity or total photosynthesis in the ocean. So the base of the food chain is, is going to shrink over time is what our study and suggests. We'll get into the whole nitty-nitty-gritty. Okay. Let's still, I'm the general. Mm-hmm. It was massively complicated for your team of multiple investigators over many disciplines from the National Center for the Atmospheric Research, the University of Virginia, Cornell University, and Oak Ridge National Library. This is all funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. All of the this crew simulating these results, the thermal, hydrological, chemical factors that drive these marine food chain effects. Talk about that elaborate of a collaboration, just so we can, it's not the kind of thing that gets addressed when you're talking about your results, and I think we all ought to appreciate what it's like to keep that together. Well, so as you point out, we had a number of uh, scientists on this study who participated in, in setting up and analyzing different aspects of this simulation. But these big Climate models or Earth system models are really, they're much more complicated than that. It takes a cast of literally thousands of people right. work on this Earth system model. And most people are an expert in their one little area of the model. But then we combine that together and we get a good picture of the Earth. And we you know, rely on our colleagues and their expertise in areas that we don't have expertise. So 
Can you talk a little bit about that, though? How, how it is to organize that, that elaborate kind of collaboration? I mean, how does that work? It is, it is a massive I mean, undertaking, and most of the big climate centers are, are sort of government-led research agencies where you can put in the infrastructure and, and sort of coordination to manage such a big group and keep them sort of focused on the big picture and all working together in the, in the same direction towards the, the better you know, simulations of climate and a, help us get a better idea of what, what could happen in the future. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest on Ask a Leader is Keith Moore, UCI oceanographer, talking about his state-of-the-art modeling and, and the cast of thousands, which projects a pretty consequential, and may I say catastrophic, the trends in phytoplankton, it, findings published just about a couple of weeks ago now in Science Magazine. Well, would you like to map out for us then uh, these trends that occur in which oceans on what level? Sort of like give us a, a picture of where the phytoplankton are uh, interacting with all of these factors and where it's sort of hurting the phytoplankton and what, and we'll get to those consequences mm -hmm. that are. Okay, so to understand this, we're going to have to back up to the big picture yes. for just a second. So everywhere in the ocean, you know, the, the photosynthesis that drives marine ecosystems, it's only happening right at the surface of the ocean. In this thin layer where there's enough light for How the... How thin? Uh, maybe 100 meters thick. Okay. Whereas the ocean's maybe 4,000 meters deep. So it's right at the surface, and that's where there's enough light for photosynthesis. So that's where our ocean plants, the tiny um, phytoplankton, single-cell phytoplankton, can grow. And so that organic matter that they're producing and the phytoplankton get eaten by the little animals, the zooplankton, who in turn get eaten by, by fish. But as those, organic, um, as those organisms die and their remains sink into the deep ocean, they're taking down the carbon and the nitrogen and phosphorus, all the nutrients and elements that go into their biomass. And so in that way, the biology is, is continually depleting the nutrients at the surface of the ocean with this stuff sinking down. This is called the biological pump because it, it pumps stuff down the water column. Okay, and away. And so... Over time, the oceans would run out of nutrients if the circulation didn't eventually mix or bring those nutrients back up to the surface. And what happens is today, where most that main pathway for the nutrients to get back to the surface is in the oceans around Antarctica, in what we call the Southern Ocean. Yes. All around Antarctica, in the circulation, there's a great upwelling that's driven by the winds there that it brings deep waters, deep ocean waters, all the way back to the surface with those nutrients. So now those nutrient-rich waters come to the surface around Antarctica. But today, the plants are not using up those nutrients around Antarctica because the plant growth is very slow because you have sea ice covering the, the oceans for eight months a year. Okay. And the sea ice lets very little light through heavy sea ice cover. So the phytoplankton can't really grow under the sea ice. So they have a short growing season. And even during the summer down there, the waters are very cold, which slows the plankton growth right. rates. So that most of these nutrients, they don't get used up locally around Antarctica, but they flow northwards in the surface waters and then eventually sink down to mid-depths. And it's those nutrients that then fuel the marine ecosystems all across the globe. So when you say mid, so that's under the first 100-meter layer. Right, so just at maybe a couple of hundred meters depth. So just down, below okay. that euphotic zone. So those nutrients do get mixed back up at the low latitudes, and that's what's fueling our ecosystems there. The photic zone for our literacy yep. sake. Okay, go the ahead. The photic zone, that's where there's enough light for photosynthesis, right? Okay. And, um, and so what happens in the future, as the oceans get warmer and warmer, and the sea ice melts... Now, when those nutrients come up to the surface near Antarctica, there's a lot more phytoplankton growth there that's consuming the nutrients. And so the quantity of nutrients that then flows north to support the rest of the globe's ecosystems becomes greatly decreased. And you end up trapping the nutrients near Antarctica because the phytoplankton there are taking up the nutrients now. And then that organic matter is sinking down and, and decomposing in the upwelling waters. And then those waters upwell again, and you get even more production because now you have more nutrients. And then, you, so you get even more organic dead and dying things sinking down and decomposing, adding nutrients to those subsurface waters that are upwelling, that are being brought up to the surface. So you get in this feedback loop where you're increasing the nutrient concentrations just right around Antarctica. Just down the to southern a, oceans. Yes, down to maybe a thousand meters depth. You wow. get this huge buildup of nutrients around Antarctica. But you're, you're depriving all the ecosystems to the north of these nutrients. So the mean nutrient concentrations in the, in the surface waters of the upper ocean worldwide start to decline over time. And they're really down, you know, more than 40 percent 
uh, globally by 2300. And so there's a lot less nutrients for the phytoplankton to grow. So there's a lot less photosynthesis happening over most of the globe, except for this area around Antarctica. And so then the whole, the whole ecosystem is less productive. So as you've given us, told us the role of the, the phytoplankton and the entire food column. And so when you are talking about this sort of redistribution of nutrients, we, we could think of eventually this depleting supplies um, for, for the food chain. But I'm thinking even before then, does it not sort of start to empty out aquatic nurseries? So the, 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 we're, we're, de- we're not reproducing, the, we're not seeing reproduction at mm-hmm. the same rate, too. It's, that falls off before there's like a whole starvation. Well, those are kind of intertwined because okay. a lot of times the success of the nursery in the first year of, say, fish uh, depends critically on them having enough food, particularly in the first few weeks of life. Okay. If they don't have enough food, then most of them die off. And so if we have less fish food in the oceans, that will, over time, impact you know, both the reproduction and the food supply for adult fish. Yeah. If that makes sense. Um, it, oh, it does. It does. Um, how do you expect this is going to be manifesting just in the like in the next 20 to 50 years in, in our own time frame? Mm-hmm. What, what do we expect to be seeing? I'll get to where, how our brains are not necessarily very well equipped to deal with 100 and uh, two, 300 year sort of outcomes. But uh, what do, what do you mm-hmm. expect is going to be happening in the next 20 to 50 Mm-hmm. Um, well, if we're going this this high end warming route where we're not cutting back on our fossil fuels, then which we definitely we don't seem to be. It, which it, which it we took, don't seem it, to be. <laughs> it took an uptick last year. Mm-hmm. Right. So in this simulation, I, we, sh- we are following sort of the high end uh, climate scenario where we assume that we don't make an attempt to get off fossil fuels, but essentially we just burn up everything we have, all the coal and oil over the next few everything hundred years. comes out of the ground. It goes this, up. right. In other words, the, the, Trump, the Trump plan right. for our future, and it leads to a grim future. So the atmospheric CO2 in our simulation gets up as high as 1960 ppm, 1,960. Today we're right about 400 ppm, so that's five times as much CO2 in the atmosphere nearly. And in the pre-industrial, we were at 280. So we've already come from 280 to 400. In this study, we go from 400 um, to more than uh, 1,600. So uh, the warming is, is, is incredible. It, it, in terms of mean surface air temperature, we have almost 10 times the warming that we've experienced up to this point. So up to today, we have about 1 degree C Celsius warming in the atmosphere. At the end of our simulation, that mean air temperature was up 9.6 degrees C, or about 17 degrees Fahrenheit, and still rising at year 2300. We hadn't even leveled out completely. Um, (laughs) So in terms of the next few decades, though, you know, the oceans are starting to warm up. The circulation is changing now. This is all getting started. And we won't see these drastic declines in productivity. That nutrient trapping around Antarctica, that doesn't really kick in until after year 2100. But prior to year 2100, you know, the oceans are warming. In our simulations, we do start to see some declines in the sea ice. It's just not gone completely in the next 50 years, but it does start to decline in the next 50 years if we're going this this high warming route. But we are already starting to see signs of malnutrition in the food train, chain, right? Especially at the, the top top of the food chain. Look, some pretty... Some pretty... Uh, what are you thinking of specifically? Water, some water or? mammals. There are uh, mm-hmm. whales that are, are, is it the right whales that first the productivity is dropping, but also just malnourished uh, of the top chain. Right. And for those particular whales, that could be related to, you know, maybe local regional food supply, but it's not tied to these bigger scale climate processes okay. that I'm focusing on. Wholly different distinction. Okay. But any, you know, in the future, as the marine ecosystems become less productive and less, you know, the base of the food chain is shrinking, you can imagine that any organism that's endangered or maybe struggling today is only going to have a harder time in the future. Right. And in particular, this kind of warming will be just devastating for the polar ecosystems. All of the organisms that live up there, they've adapted to a life of sea ice <laughs> right. most of the year. And in, in, in the Arctic, it's, you know, 10 months a year. 
And so, you know, polar bears, there's numerous seal species, those beautiful white beluga whales like to hang out in the ice. Um, you know, all of the organisms in those polar ecosystems have no place. will have there's no place to go. You know, animals from farther south can swim north and find a habitat like they enjoy today. But when the polar ecosystems disappear from the planet, there's no there's nowhere to go. So I guess in your I mean, you have to wrap your mind around what does it look like when there is it's like a food desert, a food desert in the ocean at some I mean, a, a dead, a dead ocean has huge consequences in unimaginable ways. What is your group of a thousand, thousand researchers, what do you see it looks, what does it look like? Well, How does it it's look not quite form? that grim. I wouldn't call it a dead ocean. It's not dead. <laughs> Just a less lively ocean, maybe. A smaller buffet. <laughs> yes, a much smaller buffet. And, and this will, one of the things we did in the studies, we tried to look at how do these, you know, changes in the plankton that we're simulating in the model, how will that affect fish populations and the potential fish catch for humans. And so, to, to be clear, the fish aren't in this model yet, uh, but the fish food is. And so, we look at, we use a model that relates sort of the plankton production today to the fish catch we observe today, and then we can calculate in the future if the food supply is going down this much, the fish catch will go down uh, X amount. And so, what we found is that fish catch globally could be down 20% by 2300. And some regions get especially hard hit, like in, in particular the North Atlantic and the Atlantic right. Basin. So there the fish populations and the potential fish catch could be down 60%, which is a huge change. And those fisheries, that North Atlantic fishery in particular, you know, that was hugely important in the development of, of the West, of Europe and, and North America. And they're still a, a key food source for a lot of people. Yeah. And the yeah, North Atlantic clines will definitely begin this century. Because in part, they're driven by a separate mechanism, the sort of collapse of deep winter mixing in the North Atlantic that brings a lot of nutrients to the surface today. As you warm up the surface waters, you sort of shut off that deep mixing. And so you shut off a second key nutrient supply to the upper ocean. And this is why in our study, the Atlantic Basin gets hit harder than the others because it's losing both this northern nutrient source and the source coming from the south near Antarctica is much weaker. So there are still nutrients. They'll still be... You know, plant growth in the oceans just a lot less in the future. So I guess there's a new discipline that enters into this eventually, and your team is the the geopolitical analysts who are going to look at uh, the kind of treaty <coughs> to, to share the small shrunken fisheries that are around the southern oceans, right? Everybody's going to go there um, eventually. Probably. <laughs> sinking their bait in there. So, well, a couple of, of, of the dicey thoughts here. Um, how do you, Keith appeal to skeptics or those among us whom are sleepwalking our brains don't process they don't deal squarely with the with catastrophes that happen far into the future how do you bring this into policy making discussions <clears throat> that is a challenge and um you know the most catastrophic effects are far enough off in the future that that people have a tendency not to want to worry about that <laughs> But the thing is, what, what we do over the next couple of decades is going to critically depend on what happens in the future. We're affecting all life on Earth for the next thousand years with the, you know, the, um, the decisions we're making now about our greenhouse gases. And, and time is short to bend that curve and, 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 and prevent the kind of runaway multi-century global warming that we see in our study. And so, you know, there will be effects this century. So our yes. children and grandchildren will be directly affected, but then things are just going to get worse and worse for their children and grandchildren. I think most people do care about those future generations of humanity and, and life on Earth in general in the future. And so I, I think we should all be concerned about this. Well, is there still time to reverse this? With, and I don't mean to be facile here. How can this be avoided mm -hmm. for a takeaway of some kind? Well, that's really the good news here, is that this is a, a grim future that still can be avoided. We can start to rapidly move off of the fossil fuels, and this is what the Paris Climate Agreement was designed to start us on that path. And so that really is the first step in trying to avoid this runaway multi-century global warming, because the goals of the Paris Climate Accord is to reduce our emissions of the greenhouse gases enough that we can we get to a stable climate by the end of this century that's only a little warmer than it is now. 
and it is possible to do that. You know, we've run the numbers, <laughs> we've, so we've run the yes. simulations. Yeah, it, it's doable, but we have to commit and we have to start doing it. Um, the sooner, the better. But with this tragedy of the commons, it's that sort of shared responsibility that there's since the accord and with the kind of uh, nationalistic sort of trends in uh, leadership around the world, it's a, it seems to be even a more short-sighted kind of opportunity taking that's kind of setting aside the, the, the Paris Agreement and people sort of making one last lunge in raising their standard of living with more uh, greenhouse mm-hmm. gas emission consumption there. So that, that's a political science question. I guess. <laughs> that's so, true. So, but <laughs> but uh, that's what makes me. But it's really. Worried. But it's only. You know, that's the thing about the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, everyone was on board. We're the only country that's not on board now. Even with past climate agreements, there was always a challenge of getting some of the other big polluters, including China and India, on board. Right. They're on board. We're the only country that's that's sitting this out now and. And actively trying to to sabotage the goals of this process. So that's but that the Paris Climate Agreement that is the best instrument then that we have to, for any. It is that's that's the that's path it. forward. That is Back the coordinated global effort to reduce the pollution that's causing global warming, and it can get us a lot of you know a long way towards this stable climate. If and um, yeah, <laughs> it can. So, it can if countries commit and, and live up to their commitments. But, you know, when the United States is dropping out, that kind of lowers the incentive for other countries to actually meet their goals and, and commitments under the accord. And that's another key point I'd like to yes, get out yes. is that, um, you know, the president says the Paris Climate Accord will hurt our businesses. Well, there's nothing mandatory in the Paris Climate Agreement. Each country gets to decide for themselves what their goals are as far as reducing these pollutants and how to meet those goals. So nothing is mandated for us or for U.S. businesses by the Paris Climate Agreement. And so that's a bogus reason to pull out in the first place. Um, it's up to each country to decide how to get there and what is the best way for them. So I ask this all of my climate sci guys. Uh, how how do you sleep at night, Keith? <laughs> how much rest are you getting? Well, I am very worried about the future. And in general, I would say climate scientists are a pretty gloomy bunch. <laughs> uh, because we know better than anyone what's, what's coming. And we also know better than anyone the, the strengths and weaknesses of these models. And we know we can, we can trust what they're saying in and the you, big picture sense. And you know when the assumptions are being lenient with the trends. Right. right? And so every, I, I'm noticing that maybe on Twitter where there's lots of scientists talking around that water cooler and they're saying, we're done with those lenient projections. We're dialing down to the more severe predictions to be on top of this. Mm-hmm. So you were mm-hmm. saying, I'm sorry. And I think that's true. And, and you know, for myself, I take hope in the fact that it's not too late, that there is still time to bend this curve and prevent this kind of multi-century global warming uh, that will will have, you know, devastating effects worldwide. With this much warming, uh, the great ice sheets on Antarctica and Greenland would be rapidly disintegrating. They weren't, they're not included in our simulation. We're still working on coupling that into our model. But um, with this much warming, they would be rapidly melting. Sea level would be rising rapidly worldwide over the next couple of hundred centuries. I mean, a couple of hundred years. Um, yeah, so for myself, I'm, I'm still hopeful that, that this won't come to pass and we'll be able to, to bend the curve and get to a stable climate. But it takes action on our part. The path we're on right now is the path that this study lays out. You're correct about that. So... How you're you're working on your existing models, and so mm-hmm. and you're so you you have some findings, but you're continuing to monitor how these trends are continuing. How, how does that work? Mm-hmm. Are, are you bringing on more uh, disciplines to bring in other factors, or how how do you keep tweaking your models right now? Mm-hmm. So some of the next steps are one is to is to repeat this experiment, but on simulations where the warming isn't as strong, on more moderate warming simulations, to figure out exactly how warm do we have to get before that sea ice disappears around Antarctica and this, and this nutrient trapping and ultimately transfer of nutrients to the deep oceans really gets going. And that nutrient trapping around Antarctica was a complete surprise in this study. We had known a, that it was possible from sort of idealized model simulations where we artificially increased the plankton growth. Okay. And one of my collaborators here at UCI, Francois Primo, has been a leader in this um, 
in that work. But it was never something that we thought would happen in the future due to global warming. People were thinking more that this might have happened in the past, like during the last ice age when you had a lot more iron and dust in the atmosphere coming into the oceans. And that iron acts as a fertilizer in that ocean around Antarctica. And so we were shocked when we saw this develop in this future warming simulation. In the, in the, in the literature, no one had even hypothesized that this could happen, that it could result from global warming. But the actual mechanism was sort of well-known and understood. So that was a, a big surprise. And that was when, twen- in 2012, you started to see that? Is that how... When you no, find- the nutrient trapping doesn't really start until right around 2100. So right, that right, was but, something... Yeah, um, when you discovered it, though. Oh, yeah. So about- those papers are mostly from the last decade, yeah. um, looking at the nutrient trapping in this uh, paleo context. Okay. And, and so that was one of, to me, is the exciting things about this study is this is a state-of-the-art climate model warning of us about a potential catastrophic event in the future that we hadn't even thought of that we were not considering it wasn't on our radar but it's definitely on our radar now so my hope is that the whole field will now will move to these longer time scale simulations and if you're going out you know a thousand years into the future instead of a hundred years there is some more development of these models that we need to do and one is is hooking the big ice sheets to the climate models the ice sheet models so we can get the simulate the sea level rise and that's ongoing right now um, over those longer time scales, what's happening in the ocean sediments and how much, how much nutrients are being stored there also starts to matter more. So we probably want to beef up that part of the model that's calculating what gets into the sediments. Well, a double, a hyphenated question at the end here is about um, the International Panel on Climate Change. You must have somebody on your team that's got a seat at those that table. So people are involved in, in the, the, the back, not the back channel t- discussions, but the ongoing international panel on climate change? Sure. There's people in our department who've helped yes. write some of the chapters of the IPCC. And, you know, a couple of my collaborators are in sort of the planning groups for the next round of simulations. And, and you know, part of what we're trying to push there is the idea of more of these longer simulations. A lot of the focus for the sort of the next round of the IPCC climate simulations, which are just getting started now... Much of the focus is still on what happens to 2100, but right. there are a number of planned longer simulations, and within our group, we're definitely going to focus on these longer-term simulations. And you want to do that just so we know, have a better idea, what are the full impacts of global warming and what are the consequences of the decisions we're making right now. You know, in our simulation, more than half of the warming occurs after the year 2100. And in the oceans, you know, uh, I think it's 75% of the warming, the heat accumulation is happening after 2100. Um, So we need to be thinking on these longer timescales to fully account for the effects of global warming, both on the ice sheets, but also on, you know, the marine and terrestrial ecosystems that support all life on Earth. And longer because of this the, sort of a delayed effect of the the ratcheting upward of, mm-hmm. of the, the general climate temperatures. Well, mm-hmm. so I guess the wrap up, the whole discussion here is if this is happening and this surprised your team, then we can only expect there's other surprises in other models around the world in, that deal with climate change. So it, we, we've got to be intellectually honest with ourselves and expect that we're, we're re- we should be ready to be horrified about something else that's, that's going to be recently detected. Quite possible. And that is the reason we need to do a lot more work looking at these longer time scales to find any other surprises that are out there. And then that also allows you to start looking today at the current system. Are there any you know, inclinations that this is starting already? Well, thank you for the heft of all this amazing work. Thanks, Keith. I really appreciate your taking the time to bring your essential work to these airwaves. Thank you. My pleasure. My guest was Keith Moore, UCI oceanographer, talking about a state-of-the-art modeling which projects a consequential, may I say catastrophic, the trends in phytoplankton's published this month in Science Magazine. We'll be right back with Elizabeth Brown and the Laguna Canyon Greenbelt. Thanks for staying tuned. Au ciel d'été, confond ses blancs moutons Avec les anges si purs, la mer bergère d'azur infinie. 
Chantal Chamberlain, La Mer. Thank you for staying tuned, everyone. My next guest is Elizabeth Brown, president of the Laguna Greenbelt, with Cougar P-64 successfully navigating several crossings under L.A.'s 101 freeway with corridors the length of two football fields, we turn our attention to the recent groundbreaking ceremony of the Orange County Wildlife Corridor linking Laguna Canyon ostensibly with the Cleveland National Forest. Elizabeth Brown, biologist, environmental consultant, science writer, nature columnist, having been involved in the look, feel, and functions of the Laguna Greenbelt as a genuine habitat, is just a person to take up our topic today. Her resume reads like a tireless activist in all things environmental. I first met with her when uh, the Transportation Corridor Authority first punched a hole a big one through Laguna Canyon in the early 1990s when the canyon was at the time the last pristine canyon between Malibu and Mexico. Elizabeth Brown's racked up conservation and civic wards all around the county and state, most recently the 2014 Orange County California League of Conservation Career Award. Elizabeth, originally a smithy, completed her Bachelor's of Arts at UC Berkeley, then went on to earn her Master's of Arts in Zoology at UC Berkeley and her PhD at UC Irvine. She comes to us from Irvine. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Elizabeth Brown. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. Well, Elizabeth, did you ever think you'd get here? Give us the, give us the whole timeline of this project, starting with the early 1990s. Well, the, yeah, the early 1990s was a time that uh, things were beginning to come together. There was the dreadful corridor, of course, so not the wildlife corridor, but the transportation yeah. corridor. And there was the Laguna Beach fire in 1993, from which the habitat struggled to recover. And it was at that time that we realized that there was a problem that animals from outside of our area were not coming back into uh, the post-burn area. In fact, the only animals that came in back to the burn area were the ones who had been in Aliso Canyon, which did not burn. So the thing is, we got this idea. We are maybe an island, isolated. So that's kind of uh, when it started, and we heard that there was going to be something called the Nature Reserve of Orange County, which is a reserve of 38,000 acres, but it's in two big blobs. One blob is uh, twenty about 20,000 acres, and that's the coastal sub-area, and then there's a central sub-area, and this is, it takes in a lot of the parks and preserves the wilderness parks, but they don't talk to each other. They can't. They're separated. And about that time, uh, we learned that there would not be a connection between the two areas for reasons that would take too long to explain. Uh, there was no agency wishing to push it. So, Okay. So the leaders... Leadership and vision are everything when it comes to the sort of uh, natural habitat posterity for um, for that we uh, confer on our successors. So uh, much of much of you're talking about the we. To what extent did the veterans of the Laguna Greenbelt uh, veterans that the actives have in the eventual agreed upon design, Elizabeth? Oh, okay. That wasn't until 2013. Uh, in 2012, you know, things happened here between the early 90s. Before I get into that, I want to say there was a pioneer, a doctor, yes. a retired doctor from Newport Beach called Jack Skinner. Yes, I know. I remember and met him many times. Okay. Jack and Nancy, right? Yep. Jack Skinner was Lewis and Clark for the corridor. He went from upper Newport Bay. He walked up the streams and found that you know, you could get to the foothills of the Santa Ana Mountains. And so he was the first person to show that there 
you know, there's, this is where animals could go. He was actually tracing silt that came down into Upper Newport Bay. Really? Yeah. And so we got involved um, a little bit later when there was a big fight in Irvine about whether there was going to be an international airport or a great park in a big chunk of land that used to be the El Toro Marine Corps. And so we talked it up to the county, and they included a wildlife corridor in the plan. And For the then great when park. the city of Irvine, who didn't want an airport there, came up with their plan, they put in the wildlife corridor. And so anybody who was going to be building neighborhoods around the great park was going to have to build a corridor. So in 2012, we were invited by Five Point Communities to come and talk about why we were so unhappy with their plan for the wildlife corridor. And we found that we could get along together if we were working on this corridor. And what we asked for was that we could have some wildlife movement experts come in and look at the plans, work with all of us, and we were going to make a corridor that was going to function. And they agreed, and we agreed, that if the scientists were happy with this, then we'd be happy. We weren't going to say, okay, well, you still need to do X, Y, or Z in addition. So under those conditions, we ended up with a plan. We had a round, this wasn't actually a round table, it was a round weekend out in the field looking at their plans, working through places that the, the uh, wildlife movement people didn't like or said it needed help. And we spent two days doing it, and then we had a plan. By the time it was written up was six months later, but that's the plan that was the broke ground Tuesday. All right. Well, my guest, for those of you just joined us here on Ask a Leader, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, my guest is Elizabeth Brown, president of the Laguna Greenbelt, launching finally the Orange County Wildlife Corridor and celebrating, well, we'll get a chance to at the end here of the interview, the Greenbelt's 50th anniversary. So I want to know how how does this endeavor, how do you steer the critters toward this corridor crossing? How, how, I mean, how does that take place? Well, I think you have to think of this corridor not as a little trail walking through neighborhoods or even a big trail okay. going through neighborhoods. You have to think of it as being a stretch of open habitat. The animals um, will drift in at two ends, and one end is the undercrossing of the five next to Carmax. Some of you people probably, some of the listeners probably know where that is. That's, That's South Irvine there, just in, in that, um, just just due north spectrum. of Lake Forest. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. And so that's one end. The other end is an Irvine Boulevard. Beyond, we go into the FBI property. And from there, the animals can cross under the 241. They can get into the foothills, Whiting Ranch, places like that. Elizabeth, did you just say FBI property? Yeah. I mean, the feds. The feds. Oh, really? I didn't, that's a, okay, that, that's breaking news here on KUCI. Oh, oh, oh no, they not, have... Um, I know that. Yeah, they have 900 acres. Well, okay. Well, now, now we all know, and so, and then you on the way up, there, in. right? Even if, even if you know, you still can't get in. Right, right. But <laughs> so, so much for the, the black nine hundred acres. Now we know. So that, and this, the, you said it's. Think of this as a whole expanse of habitat. So that's the the corridor is accommodating any creatures that are from all the way up and down the food chain, including all the way to the top would be the cougars. Correct. Um. Yeah, we actually thought about this as a carnivore corridor because ah. they move around more. So, you know, we are trying to engineer it so that the deer could come through also. But we're thinking about, you know, more like mid-level coyotes, raccoons, bobcats, foxes, 
these are critters that spend a lot of time wandering around looking for food. And so they just, if it's there, they will come. And so the look and the feel of this corridor, I mean, like, I think with the the LA Times reporting, we can see this huge sort of, it's a denuded swath right now. I mean, there, yeah. well, there, there's a whole plan to sort of vegetate it and, I don't know, berm it and do all kinds of things. How will that take place? Well, the plan is for a low-flow corridor, low flow of water from Borrego Creek, uh, so that there won't, the water won't zoom through and knock out all the plantings, but it will be enough of a little creek okay. in the bottom, and it'll be below. That's why they're, they're digging what looks like you know, a giant ditch. That's why. Okay. Yeah. It's hard to imagine. Yes. Once they do the grading, then there's a whole vegetation plan, a whole landscaping plan that's been carefully vetted so that they will support the animals that we want. I mean, small animals are going to live there. You have to think of something more like the Beering Strait now or Beringia when it was uh, a long time ago when people moved between the old world and the new world. And they didn't know they were doing that. They just walked in and lived there for a while and then kept moving east and ended up in um, Alaska. And they started out on the other side of, you know, from Russia. And so this is something like that for the animals. They don't know they're being herded. It's not Disneyland, you know, where they herd you with uh, fences. It's just open land open habitat, and they will wander in if they like it, you know, they'll just keep going. And the carnivores are very curious. Anybody who's been, has had raccoons in their place and has tried to keep them out knows all about that. Right. And so they will just treat it as another habitat for them to to explore, to live in, and they just keep going, and they don't know that they're ending up at the Santa Ana Mountains eventually, particularly when they get to the 900 acres of the FBI, which is wonderful (laughs) habitat. Wow. And they'll probably hang out there for a while, and then if they want, they go in these big uh, circular culverts under the 241. There's six feet uh, diameter. And they'll just move if, you know, if they find what they like. Otherwise, they move all the time. And they're not couch potatoes. They no, get up no, and uh, they go out, you know, looking for it. And, of course, it's not the food that we're looking for for them. It's the mating opportunities with animals that are not related to them. Because okay. that's the problem with the fragmentation of habitats that roads and neighborhoods do to the the wilderness lands. And so, in our humble way, we're trying to reconnect them so that uh, their genetics will improve. Right now, they're not good. No, with such a dwindling population. Well, yeah. that's a that's a a really remarkable analogy to let us think of that that sort of the Bering Strait sort of influx from from the eastern continent to to the to the western continent. I'd like to this whole habitat. It's but it's going to be perturbed by human sorts of presence, though. I mean, we're going to be moving out and over through that. It's not going to be all barricaded, right? No, it will be. It'll it, be protected. It will all be protected. And what, it, <clears throat> no and what kind of barriers? Um, these are earthen berms uh, with fencing on top. We talked a lot about this, about whether we wanted to allow the animals out here or there and come back in and realize it wouldn't work because then we would be bringing in domestic dogs and cats and 12-year-old boys on bicycles and, and the kind of stuff that leads to the breakdown of the habitat. Uh, deer will not move through some place that has dog smell in it. Right. They just avoid it. Right. And dogs also can bring in diseases that the locals don't have, the local wildlife. So, no, this will be protected. This will not be a place where you can wander around and, and see the animals. You will not be able to see them. We talked about having 
places for people to look in, but there were just no was no way to do it. That's the part that looks like Disneyland is the the walling off. <laughs> Um, right. Yeah. Well, it's protection. Yeah. It, no, exactly. <clears throat> well, I, we're running down on the time, and I, I want to give you a chance, Elizabeth Brown, to give us an idea about how the Laguna Greenbelt's 50th anniversary is going to be commemorated, besides a, a, an opportunity to, to showcase the corridors being put together here. What, how do we, what events do we have to look forward to to honor this? Well, we had work? our 50th in early February. We decided to celebrate with old friends, and we went to uh, a dinner put on by the Laguna Canyon Conservancy. Then we were making a video of the first 50 years, and that is going to be shown at some time in perhaps in April and May uh, in Laguna, and it shows, you know, how did the early... Laguna Greenbelt people who started from nothing, how did they put together uh, an organization that, and the, the ground uh, rules that we needed to move forward? Right. Because it's actually an extraordinary record. Exactly. I, they started 1968. I joined the board in 1980, and that was after the founder, Jim Dilley, uh, the bookseller. Yes. It's after he was gone. So I never served on the board with him. But the first people, the first 10 years, they did an awful lot of work. They went to the county and said, you know, we've got this plan. Let's, you know, and, and they ended up putting it into the county plans. It was in the Coastal Commission. They call it an area of special concern. Right, right. They, you know, they did a whole lot of ground work, which was tremendous, and then we just made sure that uh, you know, when the Irvine Company wanted to develop Laguna Canyon, that that didn't happen. Well, Elizabeth, we, we are out of time, but just give us a shorthand here. How can we get a follow Greenbelt in various different media and uh, your internet address, and how can we follow you? Well, we have uh, two websites. One of them is wildlifecorridor.org. And the other one is lagunagreenbelt.org, and you can get from one to the other, whichever one you go to. We're on Twitter, at Laguna Greenbelt. We're on Facebook, and now we're on the air. Now we're on the air. All right. (laughs) Well, Elizabeth, that's all the time we have. I want to thank you for being my guest today and congratulate on an amazing run in a cherished part of Orange County. Thanks very much. Maybe I'll come back sometime. Yes, I'm hoping that you do 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 that. Well, we're going to close here, folks. Just I just want to announce uh, tonight the the law school. Rick Hassan will be talking about his latest book, Justice of Contradictions, about the Supreme Court. Antonin Scalia. Then Saturday, there's two big deals: the Great American Writing at the Delhi Center in Santa Ana this Saturday, and as guest Charlie Black mentioned last week. We can all go on to the March for Our Lives in Santa Ana. Well, that was my wrap. If you missed part of this or any other part of my shows, you can see the archive programs are available on askaleader.com. Happy Noruz all. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. ستاره ستاره شب شد بیا بیرون